when you think about the mob, you probably imagine something like Peaky Blinders or Goodfellas. Italian or Irish gangsters terrorizing big cities like Chicago, Baltimore, New York in three-piece suits. It might surprise you to know that the Mafia went all the way to West Virginia. In the early 1900s, Clarksburg, Fairmont, and the surrounding areas were the home of a black hand organization known as Familia Vagabonda, or the Wandering Family. The Wandering Family made its way from Sicily in the late 1800s, eventually working their way to West Virginia as the coal industry boomed. They targeted and terrorized fellow Italian immigrants, mostly businessmen, but occasionally even miners. The family would send threatening letters warning their victims of beatings, having their families kidnapped and even murdered if specified amounts of money weren't delivered to a particular place at a particular time, and as always, without the involvement of the police. They would include things like, If you call the cops, we'll kill you. Or, If I go to jail, when I get out, I will kill you. And the cops may save your money, but they won't save your life. If you got a letter with a black hand drawn on it, that was bad news. It meant that you had crossed them and were marked for certain death. They did more than just extort money. They were involved in gambling, drug dealing, bootlegging, prostitution, kidnapping, racketeering, and murder. In 1923, several members of the family were arrested in Harrison County, and four of them were executed for their involvement in the murder of Frank Naples. And that was considered the end of the era of murderous gang violence in West Virginia. But there are still fragments of it that remain in certain areas even today. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. How about you? Thanksgiving's over and now I'm getting into the Christmas spirit. So Me too. I've been trying to decorate. But I have my tree up, but no decorations on it yet. So yeah. we're going to take care of that tonight. We got our coffee this morning from Nanny Mays. I, I just got the caramel macchiato. I love. I know that I love a caramel macchiato, so mm-hmm. I went with the safety one this morning. Okay, well, I got a pumpkin roll with white chocolate. One of my favorites, I think. Well, when I picked them up this morning, I got to practice my parallel parking skills. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, downtown. Yes, but typically, I'm, I mean, I'm not... I'm not good at parallel parking, but I did so well, I almost took a picture of my car so I could show you. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do that the other day when I picked up Lily from the bakery and really embarrassed myself in front of all those businesses out there. (laughs) That's what I'm always so worried about. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So today I'm going to tell you the story about the Sodder children. Okay. This is a mystery. It has not been solved. And I do not typically like doing unsolved cases I know, I know. at all. I like for there to be a resolution. I know. There is frustration in that. But I just feel like this is a good one to remember. And, you know, sometimes cases, they're solved years and years and years later. So this isn't a hopeless case. Right. The Boone bathtub murders that we just did, it took 50 years before that was solved, but it has been. But it has been solved. Exactly. George Sauter is the father in this story. 
His birth name was Giorgio Sadu. He was born in 1895 in a town called Tula on the island of Sardinia in Italy. But when he was just 13 years old in 1908, he and his older brother sailed from Italy to Ellis Island, America's welcome station. Mm-hmm. Isn't it hard to imagine what that experience yes, would have been like? But I do love reading about that in history books. I do too. I just think, you know, traveling thousands of miles to a country, you don't know anybody or even how to speak the language. Mm-hmm. I know. But what's crazy for little Giorgio is that as soon as they cleared customs, his older brother turned around and traveled back to Italy. What? Why? I I have no idea. Completely alone. Wow. I just can't imagine. No friends. No. And like in 2023, that's unimaginable. No, it isn't. And we don't really know why he was sent away like that because he never really talked about it or he never talked about his life in Italy. I just wonder how many immigrants actually have stories just like that. You know, know, I'm sure there are lots of from history. Right. Like we don't have a clue. We're so soft. So stinking soft. And I do know, though, that life in Southern Italy, which is where he was from, it was extremely impoverished Mm -hmm. around that time. There were a lot of immigrants coming in. Yeah. So I'm assuming his parents probably sent him here hoping that he'd have a better life. They knew the risks, I'm sure, but they probably knew if he stayed, there was no, not even a chance of him having a better life. Right. And I wonder, too, I know a lot of organized crime started over there. Yes. And so it may be to to protect them from those influences. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about oh, really? that. Actually, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into some of that later on in the story. It seems like little Giorgio was determined not to squander his opportunity. He changed his Italian name which was Giorgio Sadu, to a more American-sounding name, George Sauter. And he put his life in Italy behind him. Wow. He probably had to, to go on. You, your family, your mom, your dad. But, to be 13 whew. and do that. Yeah. But pretty soon after arriving, he landed a job at the Pennsylvania Railroad. Wow. And yes. again, at 13. He was carrying water and tools to the laborers. This was kind of a temporary day work. Mm -hmm. You know, like now we have temporary services. Right. It was kind of like that. But he was a hardworking boy and he worked his way up in in the company and ended up getting a permanent position in Smithers, West Virginia. He became a driver. And I guess that was a better opportunity. So he moved there. And then eventually George saved enough that he bought his own trucking company. How old was he when he did that? In his early 20s, younger than 27. Okay. He hauled dirt to different construction sites. And then eventually he got a contract carrying coal from the mines throughout the region they were in. He was a worker. He did well for himself. He really did. And think about all the kids who came over who probably turned to crime Mm -hmm. and just felt lost and didn't know what to do. So what a success story. Yeah, he made the best of a bad situation. I know we don't say this to the end of the show, but those were already some hard times. Yes, they were. One day, George walked into a store where this real pretty Italian girl was working at the counter. Her name was Jeannie Cipriani, and she happened to be the shopkeeper's daughter. George made small talk with her and come to find out they had a lot in common. 
Jeannie and her family had also immigrated from Italy when she was just a little girl. After a few more drop-ins at the shop and going over to her family's for dinner a time or two, George popped the question, and in 1922, when he was 27 years old, Jeannie Cipriani became Mrs. Jeannie Sauter. Oh, that's sweet. After they married, they moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia, which was a small Appalachian town that actually had a thriving Italian community there. So before researching this town, I never knew that West Virginia has a deep Italian heritage. I had no idea. I told you what life had been like in Italy, right? Mm -hmm. In the early 1900s, Italian immigrants poured into the state because of the booming coal industry. Most of them would start out working as pick and axe miners, but they were hardworking and determined. And because of their work ethic, it didn't take long for them to gain acceptance in their communities. A lot of them moved up and eventually would go on to become prosperous businessmen. For an example, George yeah, and his father-in-law, who became the shopkeeper. And I thought this was pretty cool. Back then, a lot of Italian coal miners would take sticks of pepperoni and bread into the mines because they were liable to be in there from sunup to sundown. So some of them would bake the pepperoni into the bread. And eventually, restaurants caught on and realized, hey, people like this stuff. So they started making and selling pepperoni rolls. Oh, my goodness. They're so popular there to this day that pepperoni rolls are the official state food of West Virginia. That's very interesting. I love that. And West Virginia has an Italian heritage festival every year. They have for the past 40 years. I want to go to that. Me too. I I mean, I love Italian culture. Like I secretly was hoping I had Italian in me. I don't, (laughs) but I love everything about Italy and Italian culture, probably because I love pasta so much. But Oh, I know. know. I was thinking Italian food, that would be a good (sighs) festival to go to. Absolutely. So anyway, George and his wife, Jeannie, were among those immigrants. They were in Fayetteville, West Virginia, technically just outside of it, about two and a half miles outside of town. They lived in a two-bedroom, wood-framed house. In 1923, about a year after they married, Mr. and Mrs. Sauter welcomed their first of 10 children. Oh. Yeah, Lordy. (laughs) Them couples liked each other. (laughs) George's business grew and the family prospered. Someone would later say that the Sauters were one of the most respected middle class families around. But George, he liked politics. And he liked to talk (laughs) politics, especially within his Italian community. And just like today's politics, those were some touchy subjects. Yeah. For instance, George did not like Mussolini. Mm. And he wasn't shy about telling people what he thought about him. But there were plenty of Italian families there who did support him and felt like Mussolini was actually for the people because, you know, he he started out making it sound that way, but it sure didn't turn out that way. Just, just like Hitler did. Exactly. Know? He won the people over by making a lot of promises and making the working people feel like he was for them. And yeah. then they found out. And people bought it. Yes. Yeah. Some Italian families, they were enraged at George's mm. outspoken opinions against Mussolini. 
And he got himself into some pretty heated discussions. Some of his old friends even quit associating with him over it. Mm, Unfriended him. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Blocked him. (laughs) For the record, he was right, though. (laughs) Apparently, he saw Mussolini for who he was. Yes. A fascist dictator. You know that Hitler admired him so much that he wrote him letters asking for autograph uh, pictures. Yes, I, I have read that before. The 10 Sauter children were various ages, right? Mm-hmm. So the firstborn was born in 1923, and the last one, Sylvia, was born in 1942. Their second son, Joe, was away fighting in World War II by that time when the little girl came along. And so I'm sure this made George even more opposed to Mussolini. But then 1945 came along, and by December, all was well. Mussolini had been arrested and executed by his own people, and World War II was finally over. Yay. Mm -hmm. This was going to be the first Christmas. Christmas of 1945 would be the first in six years that the country wasn't at war. Yeah. So the hard times were changing a little bit. Yes. There was light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. On Christmas Eve, the Sauter family had been celebrating the happy news that Joe would be coming home soon. The family was gathered around the Christmas tree when the Sauter's 19-year-old daughter, Marion, came home from work. She was employed in downtown Fayetteville at a dime store. When she came in that evening, Marion surprised her younger three siblings, 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jeannie, and 5-year-old Betty with some small Christmas presents. Then it was their bedtime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But as kids usually are on Christmas Eve, they were too wired to sleep. Right. So they asked their mom to please let them stay up a little (laughs) longer (laughs) so that they could play with their presents that they just got. And she gave them permission. But she was tired and had to get up early the next morning, and so she took two-year-old Sylvia and went on to bed. John and George Jr., the two middle boys, they slept upstairs. They stayed up till about 11 p.m., and then they went to bed. It was Marion's job to put her younger siblings to bed, but she was so tired from working all day that she fell asleep on the couch. Mm. At half past midnight, Mrs. Sauter was woke up by the phone ringing. And I hate getting those calls. If it's late at night, your mind automatically goes, something's wrong. So she got up and answered the phone. And there was a woman on the other line asking for somebody she'd never heard of. There was laughter in the background. And Miss Sauter told her, you know, you have the wrong number. And the woman just laughed loud. It's creepy. And she didn't really think anything of it at the time, though, and just headed on back to bed when she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains weren't shut. It wasn't really alarming to her at the time. It's just something that the kids usually always took care of when they had stayed up past their parents. Mm -hmm. She saw Marion was asleep on the couch and just assumed the other kids had went ahead upstairs and were probably fast asleep by then. So she went and closed the curtain, turned off all the lights except for the Christmas lights, and then went back to bed. About an hour later, Mrs. Sauter was jolted awake again by the sound of a loud bang that sounded like it had come from the roof. Then there was like a rolling sound. Hmm. I'm thinking of something a lot heavier than like an acorn. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
And then she listened a couple of minutes, but didn't hear anything. She figured it was probably a limb or something. She was tired and she dozed back off to sleep. About a half an hour later, she woke up a third time because she smelled smoke. She got up and to her horror realized that her house was on fire. Oh, man. She screamed for George to wake up, grab the baby, and they both yelled to the top of their lungs for the kids to get up. The two older boys ran to where their parents were. Marion woke up off the couch. And at that point, the Christmas lights cut off. So hmm. they had been on. And at that point, George told his wife and Marion to get Sylvia and get outside. Mr. Sauter and the boys tried in vain to get up the stairs where the five younger kids were, but the staircase was ablaze. Oh, no. So they were trapped upstairs. Upstairs. Ugh. And Mr. Sauter and the boys were trapped downstairs. I mean, there was just no way. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Sauter, along with Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., made it out of the house, and they were all screaming frantically to the five kids that were still upstairs, but there was no response whatsoever. Like, nobody nobody was at the window. Nobody was at the window. They heard nobody screaming, nobody yelling, nothing. So was there a lot of smoke? I'm wondering if the smoke inhalation... I don't know. I'm sure... Like they're they're down there having to see like they can't even get a response. Right. No Ugh. response whatsoever. So George kept his ladder, though. Its rest in place was on the side of the house that the kids were on. So he ran to get that ladder because he thought, yeah. well, I can't get in through the inside of the house. But he was going to put his ladder up, break the window and get the kids. But the ladder was gone, which was really mm. weird to him. Then there was this water barrel, and George was going to go get water out of it to help put out the fire, but the water was frozen. Oh, man. Marion ran to the neighbor's house. She was going to call the fire department, and she tried, but the phone did not even ring. It was the weirdest thing. You want to talk about bad luck? They were having it that night. Mm. George, if you can imagine his desperation, he was barefooted and trying to climb the outside of the house To get the kids. Then he had this thought, oh, I'll pull my truck up to the house. And then I can get up to him that way. And neither of his trucks would start. What? Now, these are his work trucks. This was weird because he had just used the trucks the day before and they were fine. But they would not start. So it is sounding like instead of just bad luck, that there's something else going on here. Yeah. These are a lot of coincidences. Yeah. A car passing by the place noticed the fire and drove to town and hunted down the fire chief, F.J. Morris. And the chief had this crazy system in place called a phone tree, where one firefighter would call another firefighter, and that firefighter would call the other one, and the other one another one, until the last was called. The fire department was two and a half miles away. It took them seven hours. Wait, wait, wait. Seven hours. Why? To get to their house. 8 a.m. That's ridiculous. That is beyond ridiculous. Yeah. 8 a.m. By that time, there was no hope. No. Of a rescue because there was nothing left. 
Right. But smoking ashes. Like, I don't know what the point is of having a fire department if it's going to take that long to get anywhere. Right. It's useless. Yeah, exactly. And it was Christmas Eve. I don't I don't know all the circumstances, but regardless, that was ridiculous. Right. I mean, like, there are no circumstances that no. can account for that lack Absolutely of not. response. The Sodders at that time were assuming that their five children, Maurice, Martha, Louise, Jenny, and Betty, had burned up in the fire. They were devastated. Mm. Christmas Day, they searched for two hours for remains, but they found nothing. Not anything. Like there's not any burned up bodies. Right. Up there. So Chief Morris told the Sodders that the fire had been so hot that it had basically cremated the children. The investigator told the Sodders that they needed to come back and investigate further, but the Sodders were so out of it that they just weren't paying any attention. And, oh, I hate that they did this because four days after the fire, they had the home bulldozed and covered it with five feet of dirt. No, all that So that they could make a memorial for the kids. That's frustrating. Ugh. A coroner's inquest was held, and they ruled that the children were victims of an accidental fire. They gave Mr. and Mrs. Sauter their children's five death certificates with the cause of death listed as fire or suffocation. And that was five days after the fire on December 30th. Mm. The surviving family members were left trying to find a way to rebuild their lives, to figure out what their new normal was. Yeah. They started trying to process the tragedy together as a family, and it turned out that all of them had similar questions about the investigation, the official findings, and they all started wondering if maybe some of these circumstances weren't just happenstance. Right. It just doesn't seem likely, does it? No, it doesn't. They really started to wonder if maybe it hadn't been an accident at all, or if the kids had even been killed that night. They remembered that when they had screamed and yelled for the kids, not one of them came to the window, like I mentioned earlier, which is, you would think, yeah, they wondered why their ladder was missing that night. They Mm -hmm. always left it in the same spot on the side of the house. Strangely, though, it was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the house. Yeah, that doesn't add up. And then some neighbors came forward who said that they'd seen a man on the night of the fire stealing a set of chain blocks from the Sauter property. They arrested the man. His name was Lonnie Johnson and charged him with theft. I saw that newspaper article. He admitted that he had, in fact, stolen from the Sauters that night. And he said that he had been the one to cut the phone line thinking that it was the power line, but said he had nothing to do with the fire. Why in the world would you need to cut a power line to steal chain blocks? Yeah, I don't. Lonnie Johnson is sus. Absolutely. I sure hope that they really thoroughly investigated him, but who knows? Nothing came of it. They let him go? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A telephone repairman then came forward and said that the line had not been burned as they had originally thought, but it had been cut. And that goes along with what this Lonnie guy was saying. He he said that somebody would have had to have climbed 14 feet up a pole to have been able to cut that line. 
Could they have used that ladder? Yes. And they climbed up there, cut the line, and then got rid of the ladder. That's interesting, huh? Yeah. And if the fire had been caused by an electrical problem, why did their Christmas lights stay on throughout the beginning of the fire? Right? Wouldn't yeah, that it, is weird. Yeah, you would think if it had been caused by faulty wiring. Right. That wouldn't make, yeah, that wouldn't work either. It doesn't. I mean, I'm no electrician, but. Right. The power would have gone out, though. Mm-hmm. There were other things, too, like the trucks not starting that night. We'll be back after a quick break. At the beginning of this year, one of my New Year's resolutions was to get my home decluttered and organized, especially my kitchen. Just going in there felt daunting. Even family meals were no longer enjoyable. I knew that I needed help because the thought of tackling it on my own was overwhelming. And then Melody told me about Shannon over at Functional Spaces. And let me tell you that meeting her transformed my kitchen from a cluttered mess to a cozy functional space that I once again can take pleasure in. Everyone has that one chaotic area in their home that requires excessive time and energy to manage. Many of us can identify more than one. For Darlene, that was just inside her kitchen door. Yes, everybody would come in and throw mail, keys, and coats all over the counters and chairs. I told Shannon this was such a source of stress for me. Why couldn't everybody just put their stuff away? And she explained that we could easily turn that area into a place of peace and productivity, a true functional space. We added a coat rack with key hooks and a small mail bin, and that has been a game changer. That's just one example of the difference she made. Functional Spaces is based in the Triangle and serves Central North Carolina. If you're ready to experience that same transformation, go to FunctionalSpacesNC.com and fill out the contact form. You will receive a link to schedule your discovery call to chat about your project area. Again, that's FunctionalSpacesNC.com. Tell her your friends at Hard Times and True Crime sent you. Yeah, that's when I actually, when you started saying the trucks didn't start, I'm like, okay, that's just too many coincidences. Right. And George believed that somebody had definitely messed with his trucks. He thought that it was probably Lonnie Johnson. Mm -hmm. And I agree. George suspected him of being in on whatever happened to his kids. Years later, though, one of George's sons-in-law said that he believed that because George and the boys were so panicked, they might have accidentally flooded the engines trying to start the trucks. I just, he drove those trucks every day. Right. And maybe, okay, so you do it in one, you don't do it in two. And you know when you flood the engine, like you, yeah, oh, I flooded it and you have to wait. Like you would know, you wouldn't do that twice. That's what I'm thinking. I just have a hard time believing that. Yeah. Did um, he have any past history of not getting along with Lonnie? No. Like, there's no reason for Lonnie to have done this. But as we get on, there's more. uh, It could have been a number of things. Okay. Mrs. Sauter thought back to that strange phone call she got that night. Was somebody calling to, I don't know, to see if they were there, to see if, who knows. It didn't stand out on its own, but she couldn't help but wonder if all of this was connected somehow. Authorities did track down the woman, though. And she said it had just been a wrong number. But, okay, let's just say she was somehow involved. What is she going to do? Tell them? Right. It's not like she's going to admit it. <laughs> right. Just because she said, no, I wasn't involved. That doesn't. And they just let that go? Yeah. 
And and that weird laugh, I don't know. Just I know. That's weird. And she said that from the beginning, Mrs. Sauter said she could tell there were other people in the background. Yeah. They were laughing. She said like it was a prank just weird. Call. Yes. On top of that, Mrs. Sauter could not get over the fact that her children's bodies had burned completely up and that there were absolutely no remains. They found parts of household appliances pieces of their belongings, plates, all kinds of different things, even pieces of the tin roof, but not one shred of her children's bodies. Yeah, I don't buy that either. I'm no fireman. I don't know what happens when a fire is that hot, but I cannot imagine that there would not be, even if the body burns up, and this sounds like morbid, but there would have had to have been like a pile of ashes, maybe bone fragments. Something would have been left. Well, something. Yeah. Yeah. There had actually been a house fire around the same time, and a family of seven were killed. And there were skeletal remains of all seven of the victims. Yeah. And it was very similar Similar. to theirs. And then they learned from a crematorium that human bones would be left after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. And this fire had only lasted for 45 minutes. Okay. Didn't get anywhere near that that hot. hot. Right. So there would have been bone fragments. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. Mrs. Sauters did some experiments on her own. She took animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed in a fire at the same temperature this fire would have been. And there were always bones left. This was a mama on a mission to to find the truth. Those parents. Oh, my goodness. They were dedicated the Sodders were convinced their children had not been in that fire. I'm convinced that too. They believed they were still alive. George emphatically denied the fire was caused by faulty wiring. He had just had the house rewired and inspected. But he did remember something really weird happening leading up to the fire. Back in the fall, a man showed up at his house asking if he had any hauling work that he needed done. He made small talk with George and kind of wandered to the backyard and he pointed to the fuse box and told George that's going to cause a fire one day. And that just stuck out to George because it was just a strange thing to say. He had just had the wiring checked by the local power company. Yeah. And they said it was in good condition. So he just remembered that Mm -hmm. around the same time, another man, a fellow Italian immigrant, had gone to the house trying to sell the family some life insurance. Somehow they got to talking politics Uh and he strongly disagreed with George's stance on Mussolini. The icing on the cake was when George did not buy the insurance. The man was so irate. The family said he screamed at George. You'll be paid for your dirty remarks. You've been making about Mussolini. Your damn house is going to go up in smoke. Wow. Well, I hope they followed up on that guy. You're going to be, you'll hear about that guy in a minute. I mean, that's a threat. And uh, that's is. a threat that actually happened. I mean, like right. his house did go up in smoke. So. It did. The older Sauter boys also remembered just before Christmas, the little kids had mentioned that there had been a man parked along U.S. Highway 21 staring at the younger kids as they were coming home from school. Mm. So George and his wife suspected arson and kidnapping. Yeah, I do too. And that's what it looks like. They believed that the kids were taken possibly by some of George's enemies. 
maybe even in retaliation for his outspoken criticism of the fascist government over in Italy. Like you were saying, at that time, the mob was big. Mm -hmm. And I'd even heard there were rumors that this was a mob hit because George wasn't, you know, sometimes they would want a cut. Mm-hmm. of businesses mm-hmm. and George was not he didn't play the he game didn't play the game so and it, honestly it does sound like a mob hit right when you hear the details of all that planning yeah it sounds like a mob hit to me okay and and this is probably far-fetched but nobody knows why George left Italy to begin with right So I don't know that it was necessarily anything to do with him, but could his family have been involved in something? I mean, I don't know. That's years and years and years later. So you're saying like maybe his family sent him over to protect him. Right. When he was so young, they just took him and thought, oh, he'll be safe there. I mean, it's a possibility. Oh, yeah. Who knows? Definitely. And then there were other rumors that maybe he had been offered to join the mob and had refused. There were all kinds of like stereotypical Italian. Well, but... I was going to say, I think it's legit, though, because of the the era that it took place in. Yes. These things were happening. They were. So when I say it sounded like a mob hit, it's because I've read a bunch of books about how they operated back then. And so those are the types of things they did. Yeah. In the spring of 1946, after the snow melted, the family prepared the soil that had been bulldozed over so that they could get to work on their memorial garden. One day when they were out working... Sylvia, the youngest daughter, stumbled on a hard green rubber ball in the ground. When they got it out, it was a pineapple bomb. I don't know what that is, but... A little hand grenade. Oh, okay. That's what they call those? Yes. I've never heard it called that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then he remembered his wife hearing the noise on the roof just before the fire. Right. That's right. And then something rolled. Yes. The only thing I, I wonder about that is wouldn't you have heard an explosion? But I guess she did what if, what hear if, a big crash. What if it didn't go off? That's true. What if it was a dud? That That's definitely something. I mean, why would, why would that have been there? So the family came to believe the fire had started on the roof, but how could they prove it? The Sauter family planted flowers and made a beautiful memorial to their five missing children. Mrs. Sauter lovingly tended that little flower garden the rest of her life. Evidence came up in 1946 that suggested the fire had not started as a result of faulty wiring, but that it very well could have been intentionally set. A bus driver came forward that had passed by the Sauter home Christmas Eve. He said he had seen what looked like people throwing fireballs onto the house. Hmm. The time he said that he saw it, it would have lined up. Hmm. But there were newspaper articles out at that time, too. So he could have seen that in the paper and made it up? It could have. I'm always like a skeptic. But it was eyewitnesses who noticed that guy stealing from them that night. Yeah. And that's something I probably wouldn't have believed. But it was true. Yeah. Somebody saw him. Yeah, Yeah. Somebody saw him. And he had, in fact, been there that night. And what are the chances that the night that your house catches fire, and that also just happens to be the night that someone is stealing from your property? Right. That's just too coincidental. It's very, a lot of crazy coincidences yeah. happen that night. Other witnesses came forward claiming to have seen the children. 
One woman who watched the fire from the road said that she saw some of them looking out a window as they were driving by watching the fire. Now, I have a hard time believing that because I feel like, I don't know, it's dark. Yeah. And why would you not run to somebody and be like, the kid, you know, I don't know. I just, that's weird to me. Another woman at a truck stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served the kids breakfast on Christmas morning. She said they'd been with two men and two women. And when she tried to talk to the kids, they would not let her near them. She said that they drove a car that had Florida license plates. Okay, now if I'm going to kidnap children, I'm not taking them out to eat. But the next day, no, you know, years later, maybe, but I don't know. I'm not saying that she didn't believe she saw them. Yeah, she may very well have served a family with a bunch of kids and thought it was them. And you got to think, this is big news and people are kind of on the lookout for these children. The local authorities believe that the family just couldn't come to terms with the death of their children. And although they sympathized with them, they felt like they were becoming conspiracy theorists. Well, we know what happens with a lot of those conspiracies, don't we? Right. In 1947, George sent a letter to J. Edgar Hoover to the FBI, and he responded to him. He did? Yeah, and this is what he said. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. The FBI did agree, though, that they would help the local authorities if they would give them permission, but they refused. I think they're in on it, local government. I mean, honestly, I was thinking that when you told me it took seven hours for the fire department to get there. I'm like, "Mm, no, no. Yeah. Somebody in local government is, is in on that. So George ended up hiring a private investigator named Cece Tinsley. So he informed the Sodders that the insurance salesman Mm -hmm. that had threatened George over his negative Mussolini remarks had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. Oh, well, surprise, surprise. Yes, that's quite a coincidence as well. Tinsley also heard a rumor that the fire chief Morris had confessed to his minister that he had found a heart, a human heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Who did that? The fire chief, because he said he didn't want to upset so he's, the family. So he's admitted that he's covered that up. Oh, man. So George and Tinsley, they confronted him. Good. And he admitted to it. And he agreed to show them where he had buried the metal box. So they dug, you know, where he had told them that they would find it. And sure enough, there was the box with some hard-to-identify remains inside. Mm. So they took it to the local funeral home where the mortician examined, you know, the remains and told them that it was not a human heart, but it was actually beef liver. Oh, wait a minute. And it had never been exposed to fire. This is weird. The fire chief admitted... That the box, oh my gosh, this this guy, he admitted that the box really didn't come from the fire and that he had planted it there, hoping to give the Sauter family peace so that they could go on with their lives. That's just weird. That is, he's a weirdo. That is bizarre. That's just out there. Over the next few years, leads continued to come in. George saw a picture in the newspaper 
of this girl in New York City. And he was absolutely convinced this was his daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to Manhattan. He ended up finding out where she lived and went to her house, but her parents refused to talk to him. And I get that. How weird would that sound? I do. I totally get it. But man, how sad for him. I know. And then, yeah, I'm wondering, like, were these kids just trafficked out or adopted? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, we'll talk about some of the possibilities at the end. So in August in 1949, the Sodders brought in a pathologist named Oscar Hunter from Washington, D.C., and excavated that place, and they thoroughly went through everything. They uncovered several small objects, coins, partly burned books, and several shards of what they believed were human vertebrae. But the bone shards had no evidence of having been in a fire. So that was strange. The bones were sent then to the Smithsonian Institute. Even though this was, you know, way back when, they were kind of ahead of their time. Yeah. So here was their final report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of the individual at death would have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age would be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, which was the oldest. Mm. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a 14-and-a-half-year-old boy to show that maturation. Yeah. The report said it was very strange, though, that no other bones were found in the very careful excavation. Noting that the house had burned for only 45 minutes, it said, and I quote, one would expect to find the full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae from one. Right. So the report concluded that These bones were most likely in the supply of dirt that George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial. Okay, so the dirt that was hauled in. Yeah. Yeah, that would make more sense, I think. Because, you know, the bones hadn't been in fire and it was still just one person's bones. Yeah. So after the Smithsonian report, two hearings were held in Charleston. And after the hearings, the governor, Oki Patterson, and the police superintendent, W.E. Burchett, told the Sodders their search was hopeless and declared that the case was closed. But Mr. and Mrs. Sodder were not ready to give up. No, it's not closed in their eyes. No. And they had a huge billboard put up along Route 16 with all five of their children's face on it, which was kind of a landmark there. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, for a very long time. They offered a $5,000 reward, and that's a lot of money back then. And that amount was actually increased to 10000 So after offering the reward, a letter came in from a woman in St. Louis saying Martha, their oldest daughter, she was the oldest of the missing. She had been living in a convent there in St. Louis. Another tip came from Texas where someone in a bar overheard a conversation about a Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia that had happened a long time ago. Then someone in Florida called and said the Sodder kids were with a distant relative of Mrs. Sodder. 
George investigated every single lead. He traveled, literally traveled the country trying to find out what happened to his children. Oh. But he always ended up coming home disappointed. Oh, man. 20 years later, Mrs. Sauter checked the mail and there was a letter addressed to her. The postmark was from Kentucky, but it didn't have a return address. Inside, there was a photo of a handsome young man in his 20s, and he looked just like their son, Louis. I mean, just like him. Wow. And then there was a note on the other side of the picture that said, I love brother Frankie. It said L-L-I-L boy, Lil Boys. And then it has this number. This number has been proven to have been associated with the mob. Oh, man. So that was interesting. The Sodders were so excited because he looked just like their boy, Frankie, who was nine at the time of the fire. He had dark, curly hair, dark brown eyes, the same nose, and even he would tilt his left eyebrow. It was just a remarkable resemblance. So they hired a private investigator to try to track down the man, but they never heard from the private investigator again. Oh, gosh. Again, that sounds like the mob. Yeah, that's weird. The Sodders were afraid to publish the letter or the name of the town where the postmark was from because they were worried that whoever had taken him might hurt him for reaching out to them. So instead, they added the updated picture to the billboard, and they had the picture enlarged and hung it over their fireplace. Oh, oh no! That doesn't your heart? heart I was yes. say, doesn't your heart just hurt for them? It does. A few months later, George gave an interview, and he said, "Time is running out for us, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them." George Sauter passed away in 1968, never having closure. Mrs. Sauter wore black every single day since the fire in 1945 until her death in 1989. Mm. It wasn't until after she died that her kids had the old weathered billboard taken down. Sylvia, the youngest daughter of the Sauters, died in 2021. She said the fire was her earliest memory. She said in an interview that her father and her would often stay up late at night talking about what had happened or what might have happened to the kids. Wow. She said that she experienced her parents' grief for a long time. I'm sure. What a tragedy. She did believe, though, that her siblings had survived that fire. And she did everything she could to draw attention and publicize the case. I mean, it's really because of this family that we're all here asking these questions now. She promised her parents that she was not going to let their story die. And she didn't. George Bragg, he was an author and he wrote about the case in 2012, West Virginia's Unsolved Murders. He believes that the kids died in the fire. Oh, he does? Mm -hmm. Uh. He said in the beginning, in the first interview that John gave, he said he had tried to physically wake up his siblings. And I'm not 100% sure about this because there are some discrepancies So some people say in that first report that he said he like went in and physically saw them, tried to wake them up. And then he ran down and they didn't come after him. But he says he never said that he saw them, that he was yelling and screaming for them. Anyway, he believes that John was telling the truth in his original first account. 
and that he had tried to awaken the kids and that they had probably died from smoke inhalation. His quote was, logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always go by logic. I disagree. Logic tells me they did not burn up in that fire because I just think logically there are too many inconsistencies and coincidences. And no, logic tells me there would have been some bones there. Yeah, yeah. And then Stacey Horn, she was with the NPR radio show or whatever, and she covered the story in 2005. Back then it was the 60th anniversary. She also thinks they died in the fire. She said, yeah, the fire only raged for 45 minutes, but it did continue to smolder all night until the fire department got there the next day. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But smoldering, again, that's just that heat is not enough to burn up bones, I don't think. Right, right. I'm no fireman, but I just don't buy that. Still, a whole lot of coincidences. And then she said she also didn't think that a two-hour search was enough time to thoroughly search the ashes. And that even if they had searched the ashes, that she's not sure those firemen would have even known what to look for. And that is true. But then they had other people come in later. And yes, it was years later, but you would still have remains. I think so. And there are just too many other things as well. She said there are so many weird things about the story that if she were to find out that they didn't die in the fire, she would not be shocked. She said, I think, you know, this is probably what happened, but it wouldn't shock me. Okay. If, if not. And that is the story of the missing solder children. Mm, wow. There are several theories out there. One is the mob thing. That's the one I, I really think that's what it was. I just feel like, and again, this is just based on I, movies, Hollywood, sure. Sure. But also books that I've read, like true story books, like, you know, Al Capone. And, and just those seem like trademarks of some of those mob hits. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed a little professional. You and know? they always believed it was a mob hit. I think it was. I wondered if maybe somebody didn't like him there in town, like some kind of a business thing. They were going to kill the, the parents and didn't want to kill the kid. I don't know. I, or that could have been the mob, too. You know, they wanted to kill the mom and the dad, but didn't really want want to kill the kids. And I heard, I don't know if this is true, because I just actually heard this today. So okay. <laughs> when I was doing some research, that the mob would actually traffic kids. Mm. Like sex. That like doesn't sex surprise me. Yeah. Um, I hope that's not I true. I hope not either. I hope that didn't happen to them. I hope if they got out of the fire that night that they went to some loving homes. And maybe, you know, there's that Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. You just grow to love your captor. And and I think that's what the parents hoped. Yeah. So here's, I mean, this is really what I think happened. I think okay. that insurance guy, I think he maybe hired the hit. And I think the mob was involved in that. Another reason I think it was the mob is that the government officials, somebody high up had to be involved in that. There were too many things swept under the rug. That's why I wonder if it was something within the town, within the community. But I think the amount of power that it takes to get a government official to do something like that. Yeah. uh, The mob is notorious for being able to spot who the weak link is in the um, forces, you know, right. police force, fire force, whatever. Yeah, that's true. They they are notorious for being able to find out who they can compromise right. in doing that. 
And I just, I don't know. I know that sounds like a really big conspiracy No, that's what they always thought. I can totally see why they would have believed that. The other theory is, did they leave on their own? How old was the oldest one? The oldest was 14. And that sounds far-fetched too, but it would be very difficult to get five children out of a house without making any noise. But there was some noise. But I'm saying without somebody yelling. Without somebody screaming. I mean, even if it's just like the five-year-old, because I thought, well, if they had a gun on them, but if it's like a five-year-old girl. But if it's the mob, I mean, they know how to use chloroform. True. You know what I'm saying? True. I don't know. There's, I mean, that's a lot of speculation, obviously. Right. And then possibly somebody like lured them Lured them out, yeah. That's very possible. And I even thought, you know, it's Christmas Eve night. They specifically did ask to stay up. Right. I just wondered, I don't know, I thought at those ages, because I don't think they had a bad life at home. Right. From There was nothing that I read. Like their parents loved them. I think they were really good parents. But if they were lured away by like, we're going to go get your parents a Christmas right. present. I can see that happening. You know, that really may be to me the most plausible. And I don't think they would have left on their own no. on purpose. I don't think so either. I mean, there's not a motive that we know of for that. No. And it is interesting that the boy, you know, that they got that photograph from the boy. And I'll have to, I'll show you the, I'll show you the pictures. I mean, it's yeah. uncanny resemblance. Wow. But a lot of people think they're just parents who wanted to believe something that they just could not let go, could not come to terms with the fact that their children were dead. And it would be very difficult to come to the terms that their children were dead. But I think if there had been at least one shred of evident that they were in that fire. That's exactly what the dad said. He's like, you haven't proven anything to me. And, you know, whoever these officials are that are Mm -hmm. investigating the fire, they don't have the level of commitment to finding out like these parents have. These parents are going to look Right. You know, and you might buy it like, okay, well, they must have been burned up. Maybe you believe that. Right. But a parent's going to have to see solid and hard evidence to buy that story. I don't know. And why would that fire chief put that heart in that? That was was weird. Bizarre. Right there. I don't trust him. Like, I don't trust your judgment on anything else in the whole story. Like, if it was your department takes seven hours to get to this fire because they're calling each other. And And I read somewhere else, the fire chief didn't know how to drive the fire truck. Yeah, that whole thing right there is just like a a bumbling idiot type thing. So I don't trust him at all. No. And then there was the guy that said he cut the phone line and definitely was there that night stealing. Yeah. So many things. Yeah, too many. Those sure were some hard times. Yes, they were. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there's no way that I'm involved in any way with the Mafia. And you're probably right. But the only way you can guarantee not to open your mailbox tomorrow to find a letter with a picture of my hand doodled on the front of it is to subscribe and download every episode of Hard Times and True Crimes. And tell everybody you know, and a few people you don't, to check us out. And remember, if you call the cops, tell them about hard times and true crimes. 
Till next time, goodbye.